We had lived in Cusco, Peru for oh, about two and a half years when the church, the little church that we had planted, and it was kind of growing, it was exciting. We had our first wedding, like the first couple that was in this new church plant that was going to get married. And so obviously the culture was different in the way they did weddings, but they wanted to have their wedding in the, the rented place where we had our, our worship services. And this particular couple that was getting married, we were pretty close to them. In fact, I think I've got a picture of them up here. Yeah, there they are. Um, we were fairly close to it. And so before the wedding, probably a month or two before, um, they came to my wife and I and they said, we, we would like for you to be the godparents of the ring. And we didn't really know what that was, but we thought well, that seems like an honor. And so we said, okay, we'll be the godparents of the ring. Um, what we didn't know at the time was that that meant we had to pay for the wedding rings. Yeah. So that was great. Um, so it turns out even in Peru, wedding rings are expensive, right? So we, we bought the wedding rings for them. I always thought it would have been better had we not been known as the, the godparents of the ring, but I wish I could have been the, the Lord of the Rings. Nonetheless, that's not. We were, the, ah, knock, knock, we were the godparents of the ring. We didn't really know what to expect. That is me in the middle, the only gringo in there with all that hair. Um, we didn't know what, the, what it meant. We just show up at the wedding, the wedding, and we were like a part of the wedding party. Right? And so we had no clue that was the case. And like our daughter was about two years old at the time, a little less. And like we're sitting on the front row fighting a two-year-old. Had no clue. It was a fascinating experience, but a, kind of a cool cultural experience. A couple of months later, I think that was in March and May, Mother's Day rolls around. And they celebrate Mother's Day in Peru. And so we get a phone call early that Sunday morning. And the girl who got married said, hey, since it's Mother's Day and your wife is the godmother of the ring, we've got a present for you. And so they brought over uh, a delicious bowl of Peruvian food. Um, there it is. Includes stuffed peppers, potatoes. Peru's the home of the potato, um, not Idaho. And you see on the top of the picture there, um, that's a whole roasted guinea pig. Yeah. So for Mother's Day that year, my wife got a guinea pig. I didn't have to get her anything that year. She was well taken care of. Um, and I, I, she tasted just a little bit of it, and I ate some of it. It was pretty good. Um, a couple months later, Father's Day rolls around, and uh, I didn't get squat for Father's Day. I got nothing for Father's Day. This was one of those experiences that we learned several things from. Number one, it's about the time that you think you've got things figured out, and uh, you discover that you don't have things figured out culturally. It was one of those moments. Um, and... The other thing that we learned is that, boy, you get some really unique cultural experiences when you live in a place like Peru. And I wish that I could bring everybody I know into another culture like that so they could experience the same things and they could have these really crazy and unique experiences because I think if all of us could have those experiences, we would develop a deeper love for mission. But that's, that's not possible and not everybody can do this stuff and, and we were excited to do this kind of stuff. But I wish I could do that because I think it would give people a deeper motivation for mission. Because I think we struggle sometimes to be motivated to be evangelistic. Now, you could bring in somebody, maybe a guest speaker or one of your preachers does this really fiery lesson on evangelism. And we walk out of here on fire and we're like, yeah, I'm going to do it. But you know what happens with well, that sort of high level of motivation. It fades, doesn't it? it comes at, sometimes we are really on fire for evangelism. But then sometimes we get kind of disappointed in people and sometimes that that motivation for evangelism fades a little bit. And while we, we wish that it could be consistent all the time and strong all the time, my love for people isn't at the same level all the time. My compassion isn't at the same level all the time. I struggle with that. 
And so I need something that keeps me motivated for evangelism and mission all the time. I need something at the foundational level. Now you might just say, well, just go to the Great Commission, Matt. That ought to motivate you. And, but I think we could even go deeper than that at a more foundational level, biblically, to help us stay motivated to be, to be evangelistic and to be on mission. And so to do that, to kind of find that motivation, I want to ask a couple of questions. Number one, what's God all about? And to figure out what God's all about, we ask, well, what's, what's the Bible all about? And to do that, I want us to walk through really quickly through the storyline of Scripture. So if you were to kind of divide the whole Bible up into kind of segments or sections or acts of the story, there's lots of ways you can do that, but I want to do it in, in four parts real quick. All right, I know. I know my, I remember my promise as to how long I would go, all right, so I, I promised that. So here's how we would start. We would start with creation, right? God speaks everything into existence from nothing. It is beautiful. It is perfect. He is in perfect communion with his creation. It's just incredible. He creates, creates human beings in his image. In fact, this is how it's described in Genesis 1. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Listen, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created him. We are created in the image of God. And while there's a lot that that means, one of the significant things it means is that we were created for relationship. If a triune relational God creates beings in, in his image, then we are created for relationship. And that's an important part of the story. But every story, every good story, and of course we believe the Bible is more than a story. It's, I mean, it's the story of God and it's a true story. But every good story has a tension in it, doesn't it? I don't know if any of you watched the, the Hunger Games movies. I, I kind of liked them. I thought they were entertaining. You can make fun of me for that if you want to. But I, I looked it up one time. There are over 500 minutes in the four movies of the Hunger Games. Do you know when, if you've seen the movies, when they draw the names out of the big bowl and like the story changes and all of a sudden there's drama? That happens like minute 11. Out of 500 minutes, the tension comes into the story at minute 11. In my Bible, the tension comes into the story on the second page of the biblical text. I've got Genesis 1, and then on the second page, boom, Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve decide to rebel against their creator to do what they wanted to do instead of what God wanted to do, and we call that the fall. And at this moment, things fundamentally change. All of a sudden, there is no longer this perfect relationship. And from this point on, the relationship between God and human beings is broken. Other biblical writers would describe this. Paul would describe it like this in Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. What's he describing? He's describing the fall. And death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Things change. All of a sudden, death is a part of our world. And sickness and difficulty and problems and suffering, up to this point, that wasn't the case. But now things have changed, and now we live in a world where we experience COVID-19, and there's death, and there's all of this drama, and there's sin. And what happened in that moment is that it separated. It broke the relationship between God and man. Here's how Isaiah described that. Now, he was describing what happened between Israel and God, but it's it's demonstrative of what happens to all of us. Listen to this. Behold, the Lord's hand is not short and that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. Listen to this. But your iniquities, that's a big fancy word. We don't use that out often. It means sin. Your iniquities or sins have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. You see, for Israel, their sins had separated them from God. 
But that's what happened with Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. At the fall, their sin separated them from God. And that's what happens in every single one of our lives at the point at which we choose what we want over what God wants. And there's a separation. And then for the rest of Scripture after the fall, it's a story of how God is trying to redeem his people. And we've talked about the great links at which God has done, but from beginning to end, all the way back in Genesis 3, in fact, I think we talked about this last night, right? Sometimes I forget what we talked about, how God had a plan in Genesis 3. Genesis 12, at the very end of the verse, he promises through Abraham that through all the families of the earth would be blessed through the seed of Abraham. And so all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, God's got a plan to put into place that through his people Israel, he would save all the families of the earth. It culminates, of course, in Jesus Christ, but it goes back all the way to the beginning. And now, we live in the epic where we are waiting. It's a story of hope, and we live anticipating what will come in the future. We live in hope. So, that is a really, really quick summary of the whole story of the Bible. So if somebody were to come to you and say, hey, what's the Bible about? Maybe you could say, well, the Bible's about these four things, this story, but what's this about? Like, what is God about? What's the whole story about? And I think if I were to sum all of this up based on these four parts of the story, I think it can be summed up in this way. It's all about mission. Like the whole thing from beginning to end is about a mission that God is on to bring us back into relationship with him. And so we could call it the mission of God, the whole thing. And God's mission is to redeem us through Jesus Christ. There's, again, a lot of different ways that you could look at that and slant that. But again, think about the whole story. It's a lot of little sub-stories here and there, but the whole thing is one grand narrative of God, through Jesus Christ, redeeming his people. It's what the whole thing is about. God's mission is to share Jesus with us and to redeem us through this. And Jesus, I think, taught this. Turn to Luke chapter 24. In Luke 24, Jesus is sharing Luke's version of the Great Commission. And we'll pick up in verse 44. He says to his disciples, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So Jesus said, all that you know about the Old Testament, that's about me. And it's all been fulfilled in me. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Now what are the the scriptures? The scriptures for these guys would have been the Old Testament. And to understand the, the Old Testament, the story of scriptures, what do you understand? Look at this verse 46. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You know what Jesus says the whole Bible is about, or at least the whole Old Testament is about? He says it's about mission. He says it's all about me and it's about how this message of forgiveness that comes through me will be proclaimed in the whole world. The whole book is about a God on mission. Now, let me tell you why this matters and what this does for us as we move forward. I think this is a perfect foundation for missions because it doesn't matter how I feel. It doesn't matter how fired up I am about evangelism or how good the sermon was or how bad the sermon was or how tired I am on a Sunday afternoon and still have to listen to another sermon. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if somebody's ticked me off at work and I don't really like You know what doesn't change? The story of Scripture that is all about mission. 
from beginning to end, regardless of how I feel, this is about a God who also is on a mission to rescue us from sin. That doesn't change. And so now I've got an unchanging motivation to be evangelistic, to be a person who is on mission. And maybe we could say it this way. If God is a God of mission and the whole Bible is a story of God's mission, then it's my job to join God in his mission. My mission is God's mission. You know, sometimes people talk about their mission, my mission in life, and families have missions. Everybody's got a mission statement now, and I think all that's really cool. But to simplify things is I think about what my life is about and who I am to be as a follower of Jesus. It ought to be all about mission. And you say, well, Matt, that's, I have a career in this, so I can't really, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your career is or what you're doing with your life or where you're at. Your mission is not your mission. Your mission, my mission, is God's mission. And let's just add on to that. The church's mission is not really the church's mission. I mean, you can have a mission statement, and that's great. You can make all kinds of plans. But the church's mission ought to be God's mission. And that's ultimately to bring people back into relationship with him. Now, there's a lot of different ways and practical ways we can go about doing that. We need to share with our neighbors and, and do and go. Is that the title of the thing? Do and go, right? That's, I love that because that is all about mission. And when it comes to mission, it's not about us. It's not about how comfortable we are or how many activities or programs we have that meet our needs. Ultimately, who we are and what we're about is mission, as God's people, because the whole book, the whole thing's about mission. And if God is a God of mission, as his follower, my mission is God's mission. And you know what you gotta, gotta do to be a person of mission? You gotta be intentional. You can't just go through the motions and be like, hmm, I think I'll be a person on mission. No, you, you've gotta be intentional about this. This weekend, as we've walked through these series of words, we said Friday night, we are loved deeply by our Heavenly Father. And last night we said we can have forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And this morning we said that God brings us together in the family of God and we can be confident about that. But the end of the story where all of this leads us to, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're not a Christian yet and maybe you're watching this some, some other time and you get to the point where you become a follower of Jesus and, and a member of this church, you know what God expects all of us to do? The end of the story is... It's not the end of the story. The end of the story is we are called to be intentionally living on mission wherever we're at and whatever we're doing. This is not just about other missionaries or missionaries that we send to other cultures. This is about all of us. Imagine, imagine the impact that this church could make if every member saw themselves as a part of God's mission. Imagine what God could do through that. You know, I was talking to Chad before, Chad on before worship service. We were talking about his brother Landry. I was kind of in between Chad and his brother Landry. And Landry's kind of doing this, isn't he? He's kind of just said, I'm going all in. And he's becoming a, he's leaving his job in Hawaii and becoming a, a missionary in Hawaii. That's what it looks like to live on mission. But here's the deal. While that's really cool and I, man, I admire what he's doing. You don't have to quit your job and go become a full-time cross-cultural missionary somewhere to be a person that lives on mission. This is something that all of us are called to. And we can admire, and I do, man, I love that. I wish more people would do what Landry's doing. But I wish that all Christians everywhere would say, you know what? 
right here where I'm at right now, I'm called to live intentionally and be on mission. So what difference does it make? If we decide, you know what, okay, God's got a mission from beginning to end. That's a perfect foundation that's unchanging for me to be a person who lives on mission. So I'm going to be, I'm going to live on mission with God. What difference does that make in my life? Let me suggest a couple things for you. Number one, it means that I intentionally share Jesus and I live on mission. Let's just imagine something. Um, let's see. I'm going I'm to pick on a crew right here. Okay, let's say that we send um, you four right here. We got a little mission team right here. It'd be a pretty good one right here, right? The Giffords and the Hogans. So we're going to, where do you guys want to go? Where are we going to send you guys? Where do you want to go? You get to pick. You better hurry up. I promised 30 minutes. Switzerland, ooh, Switzerland, okay, so we got our Switzerland mission team, not a bad choice right there, I would think, that's a pretty cool place to go, and we're going we're gonna to raise the money, this church is going to be their overseeing church, we're going to provide all the funds, we're going to fund them well, pay their salaries, pay their work funds, because we believe they can make a difference in Switzerland, so we send them to Switzerland, what do we expect out of them? I don't, I don't know what they, I don't know what they do in Switzerland, like, do they have coffee shops and go hang, do we just think, do we expect them to just go hang out in coffee shops and drink coffee or just ski all the time? Maybe that's it. We just like, we're sending them there to, to go hang out and ski all the time? No. Now, I think you can ski and drink coffee or whatever it is they do in that culture, but we expect them, no matter what they do, to be intentional about viewing every relationship through the lens of the gospel, right? That's what you expect out of our missionaries. We expect them to live intentionally and to share Jesus intentionally. If they're skiing a lot, then the contacts that they make as they ski, well, man, that's, those are relationships they view through the lens of the gospel. We expect that out of our missionaries. We ought to expect that out of all of us. But if you're anything like me, when in Peru, yeah, we were in every relationship viewed through the lens of the gospel. But I get back into kind of regular life in the United States, and I just go through the motions, just trying to survive the day, right? Just trying to make it in and out of the grocery store as quickly as possible. Sometimes without seeing anybody that I know, right? Especially in Henderson when I'm dressed kind of icky. I don't want to see somebody that I work with or a student or something like that. Right? We just want to get in and get out and do life and go through the motions. We're not intentional. But the reality is intentionally, intentional living on mission is not just for missionaries. It's for all of us. And when we view our lives through the lens of the mission of God and realize that my mission is God's mission, it forces us to realize that all of us are intentional about this and we live on mission. The second thing I think this does, or at least reminds us of and will help us with, it reminds me that, that I'm, just a, I'm just a tool in the hand of God. That's all. I'm just... I know, Ben, you're thinking you are just a tool, Matt Cook. That's not what I'm saying here. I'm simply a tool in the hand, hands of God. Go to Isaiah chapter 10 for a minute. I love this passage. So in Isaiah chapter 10, God has punished his people. The prophets say a lot about the punishment that God has, has doled out to his people. And now the time has come for him to punish some other folks. So in Isaiah chapter 10, we're going to pick up in verse 12. Listen to this, Isaiah 10, verse 12. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, so when he's done punishing his people, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. Did God use Assyria to punish his people? Yeah. 
They were in Assyrian captivity at one point. But apparently the king of Assyria got kind of arrogant about it and thought, look how good I am conquering all these people. Here's, here's what he says. The king of Assyria says, verse 13, for he says, by the strength of my hand I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. And the next verse describes more of his arrogant speech. Now listen to what God says about him. Verse 13, shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. You know what that's saying? God's saying, if you're swinging a hammer, does the hammer ever turn around and look at you and say, look how awesome I am? No. Who's in control? The person using the tool. And God says about the king of Assyria, how dare you arrogantly say how good you are and look what I've done. You are just a tool in my hand. And isn't it humbling and yet comforting to know that as we participate in God's mission it's not us, it's not about us, and it's not about our strength and power. We are simply tools in the hands of God. And he's gonna use us regardless of whether we submit to that use or not. I've been teaching now at Fried Hardeman for eight full years, and I remember eight years ago teaching my first classes, my first semester of classes, and I remember going into class, and the thing about teaching at the college level is, you gain this expertise in a field, but they never teach you how to teach, right? Until you kind of get on the job or you, maybe you get lucky and take a class, an education class or something. And so I remember my first semester, you just kind of figured, I knew my stuff, but I was just trying to figure out how to relay that stuff in a college class. And there was, I had um, a section of the life of Christ. I've taught that class at least one section of it every fall for the past eight years. And my first semester, I remember throwing information out pretty quickly. And we'd get to a certain passage and I'd say, well, you guys know about that. You guys know about this story. And I'd just keep moving. I moved really fast and I had lots of content I wanted to cover. And after the first test, there was a student who had done very, very poorly on that test who came to me and said, uh, I'm, I'm really struggling in your class. And then he said this, he said, I don't really know anything about Jesus. Um, I grew up Muslim, and so I just don't, I don't know. And I should have known that. Like, I should have connected the dots. He was kind of a foreign exchange student who came to play, to play soccer. And I should have connected the dots, but I didn't. But it was all brand new to him. He didn't have a clue. And so I slowed down a little bit and tried to teach to all the students, regardless of their backgrounds. And we got to the end of the semester. And I did this activity, I think I only did this activity the very first semester. I had a, an iPad that we could connect to the projector, and so I could write on it, and we could see on the projector live at the time. And so I asked the students, I said, okay, based on this entire semester of study, what's one word you would use to describe Jesus? And so I, I wrote it on my iPad, and I actually took a screenshot of it. Yes, it looks like a three-year-old wrote on here, but I promise that's me. It's hard to write on an iPad. And so you, they gave the names that you would expect, and it was a 7.30 class. We don't even offer 7.30 classes anymore. So there was a smaller class and, and several athletes in there trying to knock their classes out so they could get to practices and games. So it was an early class. And these are words you would expect, servant, merciful, perfect, forgiving, etc. And we got to the back corner of the room where this particular student who'd come to visit me at my office and tell me he was struggling, where he was sitting, and I kind of just expected him to pass, or just kind of look at me as if to say, I don't really want to participate in the conversation, which was fine. I wouldn't force any participation in this way. 
But we got to him and he looked me square in the eye and he said the word that you find on the middle bottom of the screen. Savior. Savior. Now, I don't really know the rest of his story. I don't think he even stuck around the entire four years. But here's what I do know. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. I was, in fact, pretty poor at what I was doing because he was, he was doing horribly and didn't understand anything we were talking about. But you know what God was doing? He was using me as his tool in spite of my shortcomings. In spite of the fact that I was just trying to figure out how things, how things worked. And the same is true for all of us. We have opportunities to impact people, and he will use us as our tool, even when we don't think we're very good at it, even if we don't think we can. We are simply tools in the hands of God. And here's the last thing I think this does for us. If it's true that my mission is God's mission, and I'm living intentionally, that it means I live on mission wherever I am and whatever I'm doing. I love what happens in Acts chapter 8. Well, I don't love what happens leading up to it. Horrible persecution in Jerusalem. Everybody but the apostles get run out of town. And the text says in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, that when they left Jerusalem, they went everywhere preaching the word. So here are these religious refugees, in essence, getting persecuted out of Jerusalem. And what do they do? Wherever they go, they're preaching the word. Doesn't matter that they've been run out of a city because of persecution, that they're probably going to face persecution wherever they go. They don't care. They viewed their lives as vehicles of mission, regardless of where they went and what they did. And I think if we can get that in our minds, that we're called to live on mission wherever we go and whatever we do, we could change the world. I said that Friday night. We need to be people who love in a way that changes the world. If we'll live on mission, we can change our communities. We can win people to Jesus. And God will use us in significant ways. So here's my challenge for you. I guess my question for you. How are you going to do this tomorrow morning? I don't know where tomorrow morning is for you. For some of you, it's going to be at school. For some of you, it's going to be in a classroom. For some of you, it's going to be in an office. For some of you, it's going to be um, maybe in a senior citizen center. Wherever. Wherever tomorrow is for you. How are you going to live on mission wherever that is? If you really are loved by God and forgiven and a part of the family of God and are confident in that, you know what God calls us to do? He calls us to live on mission. Now this does not mean that we have to explicitly talk about our faith every moment of every day. That's impossible for some of you because of the kind of jobs that you have. But by the way you live, you can draw people to Jesus and draw people to yourself in a way that then you can have conversations but the only way that's going to happen is if we're intentional, intentional about this. So tomorrow morning, wherever you're at, what's it going to look like for you to live on mission? Here's what I would challenge you to do to kind of help bring this into focus and remind you of this more often. Because if you're anything like me, my temptation is to just go through the motions and do the things that I do, and I forget ultimately that I am called to live on mission wherever I'm at, whatever I'm doing, that I'm called to live intentionally. I forget that. So what I have to do is I have to remind myself of this by writing it down somewhere, putting it on a sticky note and throwing it on my mirror, putting it on the, the background of my phone, putting it somewhere, putting it on the dashboard of my car. And here's what I'd put on my dashboard, something like this. Today, I am on mission. Today, I am on mission. Because if I don't see that, I'm just going to go through, I'm just going to live life and not think about it. I need a daily reminder 
That to live intentionally on mission is not just for our mission team to Switzerland, right? It's for all of us. And I said this once, but I'll say it again. Imagine if all of us did this. Imagine if every Christian here at Buford, imagine if every Christian in, in the state of Georgia said, you know what, today I'm on mission. Imagine the impact we could make just tomorrow by being the kind of folks who live on mission no matter where we're at and what we're doing. We live that intentionally. Imagine the impact that we could make for the sake of the gospel and for the glory of God. On the screen in front of you is, on your left is Charlie, and so on your right is, is Jack. Uh, Charlie and Jack grew up in the hills of West Virginia, way back in the hills of West Virginia. They both grew up really, really poor. Um, Charlie had four siblings. Jack had eight siblings. They lived just up the road from each other. And so growing up, they spent a bunch of time together. And as kids, man, they ran, ran up and down those hills and had a big time. Charlie's family was serious about their faith and were were Christian. They were a Christian family. Jack's family, though they would claim to be Christian, weren't serious about their faith, didn't go to church. And at some point when they were in high school, Charlie invited Jack to go to church with him. And I wish I knew what that conversation looked like and how, they, how that would have happened back that many years ago. But at some point, he, he invited him to go to church with him, and Jack went. Jack went to church with him and continued to go to church with him, and Jack became a Christian eventually. They Grew up, left home. Charlie had a family of his own. And Charlie, again, on, on your, your left, Charlie became a preacher. That was, in our neck of the woods, very well respected by, by a lot of folks. Jack was a carpenter, worked in carpentry for years and years. He had seven kids of his own. Uh, he was a deacon in, in the local church for decades. And Jack was my grandfather. The reason I'm here today is because at some point, some teenager in the hills of West Virginia invited my grandfather to church. And they probably wouldn't have used the language we've used today and said he was on mission intentionally. They didn't use, intentional is kind of a buzzword these days. They wouldn't have thought of it that way. But he just, for whatever reason, invited my grandfather to church. He went. And I'm not sure I'd be standing before you today had some teenager in West Virginia not been intentional about living on mission. When you live on mission intentionally, you have the power to change the trajectory of a family, of an individual and a family for decades. Charlie changed my family's trajectory. The Lord changed our family, I know that. But because of Charlie's intentional living, it changed, it changed multiple generations of a family. Imagine if all of us did that. Imagine if all of us were as intentional as Charlie. You know, God would use us to change the world for his glory. This afternoon, maybe it's time for you to let the Lord change your life. We'd love to help you with that when we stand and sing together. Three, five,